known as far back as 4000 BC, use of opium historically centered on the Mediterranean. Under this treaty, worked out in 1494, the Pope awarded all the newly discovered lands to the west of a certain line, to Spain, while all those to the east went to Portugal. But these arbitrary restrictions did not sit well with other European nations. As early as 1513, Portuguese traveler Don Afonso de Albuquerque recognized the economic advantages of opium. He even wrote to the king urging him to, quote, order poppies to be sown in all the fields of Portugal and command opium to be made, end quote. De Albuquerque's contemporary, Duarte Barbosa, did not share the former's enthusiasm for the drug and instead wrote of the dangers of addiction. He specifically brought up an example of its use for suicide. Quote, the women of India eat it with oil of sesame and so die sleeping without feeling death, end quote. So we see that almost as soon as European countries colonizing Asia started getting involved in the opium trade, someone from within those countries would bring up the dangers involved. Yet, as frequently has been the case in history, the risk of others being harmed didn't necessarily stop anyone from taking on that risk in the name of profit. The link between trade and opium itself is not an inherently bad one. Trade was initially a very important part of the spread of opium from a medicinal perspective. Once opium started shifting from being another commodity that was traded and used medicinally to a recreational good or even one that could be used to placate others, our collective relationship with opium really started to change. As we go from the Renaissance to the Industrial Revolution, as corporations first come into the fold, and as Europeans colonize Asian countries, we will see a very different type of evolution in our collective relationship with opium from the medicinal one we previously explored. Hello and welcome to the History of Drugs in Society, where we explore the history of different substances and how we've lived alongside and interacted with them. I'm your host, Eugene Leventhal, and this season we're covering the history of opium. This is the first of two episodes exploring the role that opium played in trade. We will start by quickly going over the early signs of trade that involved opium until the 1400s. The majority of this episode will focus on the Europeans getting to Asia and the growth of opium production and trade from the 1500s through the 1600s. In the next episode, we'll pick up with the British colonial expansion in the 17 and 1800s, and we'll recap the general state of the trade at the beginning of the 20th century. The relationship at the core of the first episode was a very different one than the one we're looking at today. In the context of trade, the relationship we're exploring is that of those growing and creating something of value, and those buying and reselling those things of value. As long as people have had things that others found valuable, and have had means of connecting with those individuals, trade has existed. So let's begin with some history of trade as it relates to opium. As we covered in the first episode, signs of coexistence with opium and of trade come from thousands of years ago. The people who were found at La Marmota in Italy were instrumental in introducing crops such as olives, grapes, pomegranates, and opium poppy across the Mediterranean. It was also around this time that beer started being brewed in Assyria. Groups like those found at La Marmota give us a sense of how opium began to move around. There was even opium found in the Nene Valley in Northamptonshire, England. The eight opium poppy seeds found there in a ditch are over 5,600 years old. And trade continued to evolve, as seen with the traders on Cyprus. 
They had a growing trade in poppy-shaped pins and jugs, which have been found in Egypt and the Levant, indicating trade. The Minoans, who were around Crete, Santorini, and other islands around the Aegean Sea around four to five and a half thousand years ago, also had links to opium. The Minoans were crucial in the trade routes they established across the Mediterranean, which in turn spurred the movement of opium as one of the goods they used. Burial sites have been discovered dating from the second millennia BCE. Trade would continue with the various civilizations that were to follow, the Egyptians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Once we get to the first millennium of the Common Era, the main thing we want to focus on relating to the opium trade is the rise of the Silk Road. When thinking of the Silk Road, it's easy to jump right to the times of Marco Polo as the starting point, but this route has actually been utilized for centuries already. The route overall goes back at least 2,000 years, when Emperor Han Wu Ti, back in around 100 BCE, first sent explorers out west to find new herbs, scientific knowledge, and any kind of interesting philosophical ideas. Others credit a Western contemporary, Mithridates II, with opening the Silk Road. Greek historian Herodotus from over three centuries earlier had already noted that a route existed into Asia Minor and Babylon, and that messengers were able to carry a message 1,600 miles in a week, regardless of how rough the weather got. The ultimate point is that the route has been utilized for well over 2,000 years now. So by the time Marco Polo came around in the 13th century, and the following hundred years or so, the Silk Road was a collection of routes that had become more heavily traveled and traded across, especially from a European perspective. Prior to maritime navigation improving to the point where the Portuguese and Spanish divided the world, at the end of the 15th century, the Silk Road was the main route of getting spices and crops into Europe. It would remain as the main alternative to long sea routes until the Suez Canal would be opened in 1869. The Crusades and general religious ideology that pervaded Europe at the time aided a desire to find a way of getting spices without having to trade through the Muslim empires. Before we get into that, let's jump back to some of the early developments of the Silk Road. Between the royal road under Persian King Darius I 2500 years ago, to the extension of trade routes from the western side under Emperor Wu around 21,500 years ago, the flow of commerce continued to gradually increase over time. Roman occupation of Egypt and expansion into Asia also contributed to more products flowing between Europe, Africa, and India. The benefit of going over waters, namely the Arabian Sea, to cut out local middlemen was already witnessed by the Romans as well. Trade relations were established with the Iranian Parthians and later with those from the Hindu Kush. Other cultures that greatly contributed to the expansion of the Silk Road included the Sasanian Empire and the Sogdians specifically, who went east from Iran and Turkey. At the same time, the Uyghur people, who you may have heard of more recently in the context of surveillance and camps in China, were expanding these routes from the east. In addition to written and artistic descriptions as well as archaeological findings, we can also turn to remains of coins from across different cultures and different geographies to give us some indication of the flow of goods. For example, Sassanid and Byzantine coins were found in China by the 5 and 600s. These early interactions set the stage for more trade in the coming centuries. As Islam started to grow and expanded into China, opium started to appear in Chinese writing. To be clear, this is because the Muslim world was the epicenter of scientific advances at the time, and that meant bringing the most recent medical knowledge, which entailed opium. 
And overall, there's a lot of potential history to explore here, but in the interest of time, we're going to fast forward to the 1200s. By the 13th century, Italian merchants started getting heavily involved in the trade. Guilds were playing an important part of the city-states that developed amongst the Italian merchant republics. Until the Portuguese had landed in India in 1498, Italian merchants controlled the majority of the trade. What we know of as modern Italy today was really a group of merchant republics at the time, which was a very stark contrast to all of the absolute monarchies that existed elsewhere. As a result, these Italian city-states were able to focus more on economic expansion and were able to develop trade relations outside of larger geopolitical forces. Marco Polo, traveling with Papa Polo and crew, went to Asia where the Polos acted as diplomats and missionaries. They lived in a Venetian community in Constantinople for a while before moving on to Crimea in 1260, and then on to Uzbekistan before joining a grandson of Genghis Khan all the way to Beijing. At this point in time, there really was little difference between diplomatic, religious, and commercial missions to Central Asia. And so the Venetians, Polos included, took up the trade and became a sizable economic force until the dynamics of trade would be disrupted due to maritime trade a few centuries later. When it comes to Marco Polo himself, he may have used opium at least medicinally after getting sick with tuberculosis. That's pretty reasonable to believe given that he was in northeast Afghanistan at the time, which was the center of opium farming then. And when he got sick, and given the medical understanding at the time, opium would have most likely been used for such an ailment. I found some records indicating that opium may have played a greater role in Marco Polo's life beyond this one instance, but I wasn't able to find something definitive enough, so I'll just mark that down to speculation for now. By the mid-14th century, the trade from Asia had brought back one unintended guest, the bacterial infection that is the Black Death. The bacteria supposedly originated in China and passed through Sicily. The Black Death had a tremendous effect on Europe. As mentioned last month, it's estimated that between 30-60% to 60 of Europeans died as a result of it, which means that there were roughly 75-200 to 200 million deaths. This had set the stage for a rise in the middle class in certain cities such as Amsterdam and Antwerp due to the relative availability of resources. As Europe was dealing with the Black Death, China, under the Ming Dynasty, shifted towards a more isolationist mentality. Before the isolationist mindset kicked in, Zheng He, the previous emperor of the Ming Dynasty, had put out a group of armadas with 250 ships and 2,800 men to explore back in 1405. After Zheng He died, attitudes changed and the Great Wall was reinforced, and isolationism really went back into full force. At the same time, the Ottoman Turks were also beginning to become the dominant force in the Balkans and the Levant around then. In 1453, the Ottomans took Constantinople and so had control of the trade routes from Asia to Europe. That is, again, until there were some major advances in shipmaking. And the Portuguese were on the forefront of these advances as they continued to push into Africa and to look for new sources of precious metals to fund their kingdom and conflicts with Spain, or Castile as it was known at the time. This would begin to upset the balance of Italian merchants and Ottomans controlling the bulk of trade from Asia and the Middle East. While the Portuguese were pushing down the African coast, the Spanish went across the ocean under Christopher Columbus and got to the Americas in 1492. The Portuguese, under Vasco da Gama, got to Calicut, known today as Calcutta, in India on May 20, 1498. This got the Venetians worried as the new trade route posed a threat to their long-standing involvement in the Silk Road. 
There were some Venetians who even proposed a version of the Suez Canal back in 1504, granted it didn't go anywhere. This generally marked the beginning of the Portuguese dominance that was coming as the power of Venice was decreasing. Antwerp ended up becoming a center for many traded goods, including diamonds and opium, which points to the position that the Dutch were solidifying as they would come to dominate after the Portuguese. I also want to stress the fact that throughout this general era, opium was classified as part of the spice trade. To highlight this, we can turn to the work of Yale professor Howard Haggard, and here are a list of some spices that were traded not just for culinary reasons. Cinnamon was used for its anti-inflammatory benefits and as an antimicrobial and antioxidant. Clove was used similarly as an antioxidant and antimicrobial, and was also used for antiviral and analgesic purposes. Camphor was used for respiratory ailments, aloe was used for skin irritants, rhubarb was used for digestive problems, sandalwood was used as an antiseptic, and cannabis extracts were used for actually a wide variety of things. At this time, the idea of a pharmaceutical industry didn't really exist. It was with the creation of the London Dispensary in the mid-1600s that separate companies focusing on creating medicines started to form. And when these efforts did start happening, they were happening in coordination with governments to ensure quality. So it's important to realize that until what we think of as pharmaceuticals started taking off in the 1800s, the spice trade was as much related to people's health and well-being as it was to titillating their taste buds. The 1500s also saw a rise in other stimulants start to play a more serious role in trade. To get a sense of some other goods that were starting to be traded, we saw tobacco coming from North America, coca, the basis of cocaine, coming from South America, hemp coming from the Middle East and India, beer from some of the Germanic countries, rum and hard spirits from the British colonies in the Caribbean, wine from southern France and Italy, coffee from Arabia, sugar from Persia and India, and tea from China. And so especially with the introduction of more maritime trade, we would see these global networks grow and strengthen. As trade expanded within Europe and other parts of the world, negative associations and other social elements arose as well. Opium became linked to syphilis and a general suspicion of others as trade expanded overall. The global and social elements of this were highlighted by the fact that Italians called syphilis the French disease, meanwhile the French called it the Italian disease, the Dutch called it the Spanish disease, the Russians called it the Polish disease, the Turks called it the Christian disease. I think you get the point. These things were just very convenient to be used to other someone else. Before we get into the Portuguese in a bit more depth, I want to mention a few more things. In 1500, China's population was 155 million people, which was 30% of the world's total population. The Spanish Empire had 8.5 million people, and the English Empire was 2.25 million people. The Spanish and the Portuguese soon started realizing that the silver that they were finding in the Americas was actually more valuable in Asia than it was back in Europe. Additionally, a silver mine was discovered in Japan in 1526, and that silver was used to trade even more. This would solidify the truly global nature of trade in the 1500s, as well as a reliance on precious metals for trade and one of the pioneers in the global trade game was Portugal. As the Portuguese continued to expand in India and Asia as a whole, they started to learn more about different medicinal applications of opium. One person on an expedition to Malacca noted that opium also acted as a currency. The Portuguese were actually more interested in clove at the time than in opium. The efforts of the Portuguese from an expansion perspective led them to modern-day Guangzhou, called Canton, in 1516. 
That did not go over so well, but it absolutely did not stop the Portuguese from trying again. By 1557, the Portuguese had leased Macau, which is 80 miles southwest of Canton. And we'll talk about this more in the next episode with the Canton system in terms of trade into and out of China. But the important part for now is just that the Portuguese were really one of the people initiating this. By 1557, the Portuguese had leased Macau, which is 80 miles southwest of Canton. Supposedly, their ability to get Macau may have actually been based on the Portuguese access to a sperm whale's digestive tract for use in an aphrodisiac of a Chinese emperor. Is an old-time trade fun? On June 24, 1571, the Spanish captured Manila in the Philippines, and opium was traded there after that point. The Spanish, like many of the Europeans coming to Asia, would treat the locals brutally. Let's take a break from the Europeans for a moment and jump back to the Ottoman Empire. Anatolia, under Ottoman rule, saw opium cultivation blossom. But that wasn't the only thing blossoming, as persistent protests related to the growth were increasing as well. It's argued that this time period was also when the foundations of modern organized crime in Turkey were established. A Frenchman in 1546 saw a 50 camel caravan packed with Turkish opium and commented on the widespread usage of opium amongst Turks. There are some indicators that show opium was not just available amongst the rich and may have been used on a more widespread basis. Though there may have been some periods of increased usage, I have not been able to find more in-depth explorations of the addiction and large-scale usage side. There are at least some records of Turkish and Arab captives from that time who were struggling with withdrawal from opium. The Mughal Empire also had a strong opium culture, and so opium trade was definitely present there as well. The Mughal relationship to opium will be much more relevant for the British, so we'll get into that a little more next episode. Coming back to the Portuguese, they were definitely a force in terms of trade in the 1500s. Magellan and his navigation of the globe happened in 1518. Portuguese dominance of the waters was still being fought back by Castile as the primary competitor in global trade. In addition to the desire to find goods and resources to trade, pushing religious ideals and converting local populations was also a top priority for the Portuguese. To quote Roger Crawley's book Conquerors, the idea of outflanking Islam's grip on Europe was both economic and ideological, end quote. In addition to a link between trade and religion, there was also a link between trade and science. Interest in navigation led to support of science. Yet another link with trade was the growth in more geographic movement overall, both willing and forced. As an example, by 1500, it's possible that up to 15% of Lisbon's population was actually from Guinea. One of the other links that I want to stress is the one between trade and violence towards local populations. There were certain instances that led to slavery, but more generally, there were many instances of intensely violent acts. Crawley also noted that the Portuguese had a tendency to shoot without the slightest provocation, which was a tone that they set pretty much as soon as they landed in southwest Africa and would continue with them into Asia. And so advances in shipping, partially funded by money that was linked to drugs or violence, led to advances in more trade that in turn led to growth in violence and trade quite the self-perpetuating cycle. Advances in finance were also crucial, but we'll get to that shortly. Afonso de Albuquerque, who we mentioned in the open, supposedly saw opium being sold in Burma and in China around 1511 or so. He urged the king to start cultivating poppies given how much money could be made. 
This marked a turning point that would slowly develop as some individuals who got involved in the trade prioritized profit over just the basic well-being of other human beings. As the Portuguese generally pushed their conquests towards the Red Sea, they slowly started realizing just how many goods were finding their way through this area. This included slaves from Africa, incense and dates from Arabia, bullion from Europe, horses from Persia, opium from Egypt, porcelain from China, war elephants from Ceylon, rice from Bengal, sulfur from Sumatra, nutmeg from the Moluccas, diamonds from the Deccan Plateau, and cotton cloth from Gujarat. Very importantly, and something that the Portuguese did not really get, was that no one had a monopoly here. The trade here was shared amongst all. To quote a phrase that was mentioned in Crawley's book again, God, it said, had given the sea in common. The Portuguese, however, had very different intentions. They wanted to control and have a monopoly. In order to achieve that level of control over the trade, they turned to hostage-taking as a default strategy when dealing across the region. And more generally, the Portuguese perceived really as the entire region being hostile towards them. When it comes to any of the colonizing countries, there's almost a never-ending amount of history of specific conquests and violence to unravel. Given that I want to provide an overview and not an exhaustive walkthrough, I'm just covering the major events. If you ever want to hear more on any topics that I touch on and you think I cover too lightly, please let me know and I'll try to add extra episodes or try to get a guest on relating to it. Back to the Portuguese. Through the rest of the 1500s, they would extend their conquests across Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. In addition to this heavy use of slaves and maltreatment of them, the Portuguese had exacted a number of massacres on local populations. One notable one was in Egypt. And this general progression through the region and the attitude that was taken on led one of the main officials on the Portuguese side to effectively be looking to inflict annihilation. And looking back on the history, it's easy to see the fact that there were such multicultural places of trade and knowledge that existed. It's a shame that the Portuguese looked at this all from a very fear-based and controlling-based perspective, which led to so much violence and hatred. Gujarati merchants acted as middlemen for the trade across the Indian Ocean and resisted the Portuguese advances. Cannons were beginning to play a role in the future of warfare as more battles continued to develop. The main innovations that would start changing the balance of power in the seas was not to be used in combat. Instead, that innovation would be used to finance these conquests. Though the British East India Company, founded in 1600, came earlier than the Dutch East India Company, which was founded in 1602, the VOC, as the Dutch East India Company is known, would have a greater impact in the coming decades. The Dutch had been trading in Indonesia by the 1590s, and they reached China before the British. While the British East India Company was established as a merchant trading company, the VOC was created as a military organization that was determined in crushing the Spanish and Portuguese competitors. While the Portuguese had used their advanced shipping knowledge to their benefit, the Dutch were able to make advances in cartography that would help them in the 1600s. These advances led to a rise in new products coming through Dutch ports. As an example, tea arrived with Dutch traders in Amsterdam in 1610, and coffee arrived within five years in Venice. Not only was the trade bringing new goods to Europe, but it also found ways for goods to start getting mixed. It was likely in Java that opium was mixed with tobacco for smoking purposes for the first time. 
That's likely given the popularity of smoking overall and the fact that tobacco mixes were already being smoked there. Some edicts were released in Java to limit smoking, but they were never really effective. When considering the behavior of the Dutch and other foreigners across Asia, it's important to consider that many of the people actually going on these funded trips were largely illiterate and lower-class personnel joining. At certain points, it rose to as high as 80% of people joining VOC-funded trips were illiterate. So it should not be totally shocking to think why such violent tones were set from the beginning of the European arrival to Asia. Part of the overall success of the Dutch was due to the financial advances in drawing up contracts, which actually gave them a legal basis for any kind of disputes in trading. By the mid-1600s, the Dutch had started to expel the Portuguese from some of their holdings in India and elsewhere across Asia. The way things worked out under the Dutch, a linked form between the trade of opium and pepper. There were also some attempts at creating monopolies under the Dutch, even before the British would normalize that practice in India. For the Dutch on the Malabar coast, this turned into an export monopoly on pepper and an important monopoly on opium. The Muslim Moors and the English would continue to resist the Dutch in the 17th century. As the VOC started organizing holdings in Bengal in the 1680s, the majority of exports were going to Java, modern Indonesia, and to China, where opium habits had already been common amongst the wealthier classes. In 1676, the VOC established a trade monopoly of raw opium, thus making the Dutch the first Europeans in Asia growing opium. Thanks to the efforts of the Dutch, the British, the Portuguese, the Japanese, and others, the usage of opium had already reached problematic levels in China by the 1720s. The Yongzheng Edict was meant to reduce the importation of opium, though it proved to be ineffective in the next century leading up to the Opium Wars. The Portuguese were still being tolerated by the Chinese in Macau, given that they proved to be a good pirate repellent in the waters leading up to it. We're going to wrap up with the Dutch here before we get to the British in the next episode. Admittedly, there's a lot more history to dig into in terms of the specifics of colonization and economic advances. Given that I'm trying to keep the episode count for the season in the low double and not low triple digits, I'm just going to be pulling the biggest takeaways as I see them. If you ever want to hear more about any specific periods, cultures, uses, or impacts, just let me know and I can do a bonus episode on it. Anyway, as the Dutch monopolies expanded, the flow of products increased as well. The export of opium specifically went to both medical and recreational users, but was also promoted at times as a means to placate workers. Opium growth would continue in Java as well, and the usage would rise around the areas of cultivation. One of the most important cultural changes that arose under the Dutch in Java was the introduction of opium smoking, as mentioned earlier. While the Portuguese and Spanish introduced pipes for smoking in Southeast Asia, the practice really took hold under the Dutch. While it was still done in relatively modest proportions before the 1700s, smoking would be the main mode of consumption in China and really elsewhere in Asia in the subsequent centuries. The link between trade and opium is one that has existed for millennia, and it grew to play an instrumental role in the overall revenues of the European countries colonizing Asia by the 1800s. The trade of the raw product and the processed version of both laudanum and smoking opium would explode during that time. The next episode of the season will pick up with the increasing presence of the British in Asia starting with the 1700s. 
We will spend some time going through the growth of the opium trade with China, the opium wars, and the general state of the opium trade heading into the 1900s. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. The History of Drugs and Society is written and produced by me, Eugene Leventhal. Credits to Blue Dot Sessions on the music, and BBC Sound Effects, Splice Sound, and Kyle's for the free audio. Feel free to reach out on Twitter, at Drugs History, or over email, History of D-I-S, that's History of Drugs and Society, History of D-I-S at gmail.com. I'm going to add a link to the citations in the show notes. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and rate on iTunes. Be well, and speak soon. Mm-hmm.